Audible Originals presents DJ Drama's Gangsta Grills Podcast. The following contains language and content some may find offensive. Consistency, prayer, and hard work. You know, and I know that sounds cliche, but I really do believe in prayer and having faith. I do that. You really got to work hard. You got to do it when you don't want to, when you want to, when it's raining, when it's cold, when it's hot, when it's all that. So for me, when I mix all those elements together, I've got nothing but success back. And it just come back tenfold. talk gangster grills and we talk classics we cannot talk about the series without this man to the left of me i call him tit because he's a friend of mine you know him as two chains chains welcome to the show thank you for having me absolutely so i'm gonna take it back a little bit um let's talk about your your early journey in music would you say like your early memories would be your mother playing records and, and music in the house yeah, I mean, my early memories would be just actually seeing visuals of vinyls, whether it's um, New Edition or Rick James with those red boots and um, or Michael Jackson with this white coat. And it's just like all these images that are part of my way of thinking now as far as marketing and how stuff is supposed to look. Mm. So for a long time, um, my pop had accrued a lot of like vinyl and I would just see that all the time. And he was a person... He was an individual that kept like the clock radio on all day on that on that 104 type of mm-hmm. vibe station. You know what I'm saying? So I was always hearing these tunes, whether it was the, you know, whispers of Marvin Gaye or Frankie Beverly and Mays or whatever it was, you know, it's just been a part of me, like literally going to sleep, listening to music and waking up listening to music. And then what about hip hop? What's your earliest hip-hop memories my earliest hip-hop memories were was my older cousins playing luke (laughs) too short and nwa uncle luke with the two live crew in florida too short in oakland and nwa in compton three legendary acts from three different cities back before atlanta's influence in hip-hop became what it is today i remember hearing those records when i was very young and being and feeling good about hearing them and how I was hearing them. And I didn't get the loop tape or whatever, but mm-hmm. I ended up getting a copy of Short Dog in the House with the little animation on I it. I remember that one. And I ended up getting the N- NWA, well, I, I want to say like Fuck the Police and yeah. all that on there. And then when did you first start meddling with music yourself? It came naturally for me because I, I think I've always been someone that... Um, didn't mind having attention. Like, I played basketball early on, and I used to, like, want to get an and one. I would get an and one and then get a tech and, like, mm. fuck the whole play up. With the music thing, I was I would I would freestyle a lot. I would be at this car wash off um, Riverdale Road, trapping my little sax, and they used to come up and be like, man, you, man, won't you spit something? You know what I'm saying? And I would do that, and then people would tell me, man, you need to go to the studio. And then I finally went to the studio. I went with Dollar. Dollar, a.k.a. Dollar Boy, is the other half of Player Circle, the rap duo 2 Chains began his career with. And he was already seasoned. Like, he knew how to, you know, arrange songs and do all that. But by the time I think I recorded my second song, 
I started getting a lot of positive feedback that made me believe in my mind, like I might be able to do this one day, you know what I'm saying? And I was probably about 18, 19 years old or something like that. Okay, so you go to Alabama State for basketball for a bit. You come back to Atlanta. Ludacris starts DTP. How do you become a part of Disturbing the Peace? After Ludacris couldn't secure a deal with a major, he created DTP along with Shaka Zulu and his brother Jeff to support rappers from the Dirty South. Luda went from selling 50,000 albums from the trunk of his car to going triple platinum on his second album. What happened was before the um, airport expanded, we, we stayed in these apartments off Riverdale Road and um, they were going around paying people to move, basically, so they can build this runway, you know what I'm saying? And Ludacris used to work on the radio and he was a very intelligent guy. And he ended up moving into the apartment so he can get a check to move somewhere else. Mm. But in the meantime, I was working with these hood niggas mm. and they trying to put some music up. So we don't put together a compilation and we trying to get it to do. He was one of the people that liked the second song I ever recorded in my life. He okay. don't know this is my second song, but yeah. he like saying he want to make one of my lines a hook. And I don't even really know what this means. He mm. like, well, when you say this, I want to. And you know what I mean? And from then point on, we became really cool. We had a lot of, we shared a lot of similarities and I ended up working with him for a period of time. What do you think like you, you learned most from Chris in those days from being a DTP? Probably the professionalism aspect of mm -hmm. it, you know what I'm saying? How to really like take the moment seriously. The two people that I did learn from the most would be Wayne and Chris from the time that I spent around them, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? I just wasn't around not doing nothing, so. I don't know. Chris was just how he knew how to move. And I picked up my work ethic from Wayne and just how much he just took music like a job and studio is like something that you do every day. So I can honestly say I learned a lot from both those individuals. I don't remember where we were going, but we wound up sitting next to each other mm -hmm. on the plane. And you were like, yo, I want to play you these records. Mm -hmm. And one of them was Duffel Bag Boys mm -hmm. with Wayne on the hook. And I got to I got to hear it months before First. it came out. Yeah. And it was off top. I was like, yo, that's out of here. Like yeah. And it's fair to say that was your first hit record. Yeah, definitely, no doubt. So how did I want to talk about the your, your relationship with Wayne and then how that record came to be? All right, the the truth behind that record. So I met Baby first. I okay, met Baby, I met Patchwork. Patchwork, the legendary studio in Atlanta. Everyone from Outkast to Ti to Charlie Wilson has recorded there. It's a true hip hop landmark. So I'm using my little trap money, my little weed money. Okay. But that's what everybody doing to book studio time and patchwork because it's going to be like a, a artist somebody on the other side. You know what I'm saying? Right. So somebody tell me, these niggas over here want some weed. I say, shit, I got them. You know what I'm saying? The, uh, the, the zip's like 450 at the time. I never forget it. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, shit, they like, baby wants some. I'm like, baby. So I go to the other side and at this time, baby wasn't smoking. He getting it for his gang and he got like... You know, I'm seeing how he take care. He got Chinese food stacked up to here for everybody. He got 30, 40 niggas, and they want weed. And, and he, he like, hey, hey, Slim. You know, he keep calling me Slim and shit, Slim, you know. And I went, this call him like 450. So he take a couple of um, zips and tell me kind of, hold on, he going to give me the money in a minute. You know what I'm saying? And... Before I knew it, I was in New Orleans because I'm still trying to get these 450. <laughs> 
I never forget this. The man, like, you know where the mall at? I'm like, yeah. So from Patchwork, I take him to South DeKalb Mall. I feel like it was there for some reason. And he goes in the store, and everybody that's with him take off all their clothes and put on new clothes. When they telling me, Shorty, you better get you something. You know what I'm saying? I'm just standing to the side. And at this time, like, my pop hadn't even bought me no clothes for real. So I'm just kind of sitting around. And so he say, Slim, you ain't going to get none? And I say, shit, yeah, I got some Tim's or some shit and some other shit. So they saying they gonna leave and go to New Orleans back that night on the bus or something. I'm still trying to get these little 900. Mm -hmm. He damn near like, Slim, you coming? In my mind, I like, I guess so, cause I got to figure out how to get this money, man. So I go to New Orleans. Mm -hmm. I'm down here and uh, this is bef before Katrina, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And when Wayne comes to the house, I got this strong weed, you know what I'm saying? And we kind of befriended each other off the strong weed. And then Katrina happens and mm. the whole New Orleans things ends mm -hmm. and he has to move to Miami. Mm -hmm. And um, he telling me, um, come to Miami and, and, you know, holler at me. So I come to Miami. This No, I'm sorry, before I come to Miami, he comes to Atlanta. He's at the studio that we own, the street is on now. T.I. used to have it. Got you. So he's there and, you know, he doing all this, like, heavy blood stuff, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Red, red, red. Mm -hmm. And so he's a, he's becoming a skater wearing like a lot of these shoes called Supras. I'll never forget mm -hmm. them. So Gucci drops these red Gucci's, all red Gucci's. Mm -hmm. So I said, Shorty, what size shoe you up? And he's like, I don't know, seven, eight, some shit like that. So I get two pair from Lennox and I take them to T.I. Studio where he at, you know what I'm saying? And I leave them on the bus and I come in there like, where my shoes at? I'm like, damn, you know, I see it's niggas in here. I see, you know, it's a lot of niggas. I'm kind of ashamed, but at the same time, I got this beat CD in my pocket mm -hmm. that I had just got, and I, I, I show him the shoe. He like, man, it's love. And I was like, man, I got this, this shit. You know what I'm saying? And he, he took the beat CD. Maybe two weeks later, I go to Miami when he moves to Miami, and he repays me the favor by taking me to the mall, Bell Harbor. He walk up and just be like, let me get this whole wall of, of Prada's right here. You know what I'm saying? This is when Prada's popping. And then out the blue, he say, damn, you ain't gonna say nothing about the hook I did for you. And I said, what hook? And it's me, him, and Tez. That's Cortez Bryant, Wayne's manager at the time, and a hip-hop staple. Tez is driving, mm -hmm. his mind, it's only me, him, and Tez at the okay. time. And um, he say, what's the email? They go over some shit. And whatever email it was, it wasn't my email. You know what I'm saying? So now I'm tripping. Like, I don't know where you done sent this. And so he, he literally in the middle of the mall, like, trying to tell me how the hook go. Like, it, it went, um, I don't do nothing. I'm, Damn, how that bitch went? How that? Fuck that shit. Let's go to the studio. I'm like, fuck that shit. Let's go. Mm -hmm. Man, we get to the hit factory, and the man played a song. And I put this on everything. i never forget this shit, bro. I'm damn near teary-eyed when he do that, bitch. He do the song, and I look at that nigga, I say, you did this for me, bro? Because <laughs> he say, it's, it's a hook, man. I do the hook three different times. You can either take one hook and fly it or just leave it like it is. Basically, all I had to do was just insert my verse. I got that bitch, I say, the beat so hot, the flow so ice cold. Walking to the Gucci store, honey, I'm on that nigga. But you ain't got to say nothing else. That bitch over with. <laughs> did, Dollar jumped on it, and it, it just really changed my life. I attest that to where I am right now. And that, and that was around the time when you went on that tour. That was like early Young Money days where like Drake and Nicki had just gotten signed. Mm -hmm. and yeah, yeah, it was early on. Yeah, um, Drake had just dropped on a successful song. Yeah. And, yeah, Nicki, so yeah. And, and just, and even watching what they did in the next year or whatever was very motivational for me because I feel like you're either going to get motivated or you're going to hate on the situation that you see someone else in, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. While we're on the subject of Wayne, 
after you become two chains. Now we all know two chains. But before that, he was Titty Boy, a nickname given by his mother, Titty Man, to his father. It was a fun expression of love, but the industry saw otherwise, feeling like it was too inappropriate. So in 2011, Two Chains was born. You went on a a feature run that people compare to Wayne's feature run. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like when it comes to that, like a, a real legendary feature run. There's Toon's feature run and then there's your feature run. Mm-hmm. Was there motivation for that? Is it something that just happened? Like, I mean, I think it was just um, mimicking what I saw Brud do. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I did, I mean, I did everything from get a chauffeur to get a chef. And even when it came to features, I would do them as soon as I got them. As soon so, as somebody would send it to you? As soon as somebody, I still do that. Yeah. In, during that run in a year, do you remember the year you had the most features or how many you did? It was, it was between, um, I want to say 12 and 13. If Wayne had 100, I had 70. It was one of them yeah. things like that. I was going to say, like, I feel like it was like 72 or yeah, 75. Yeah, it was 70 something. Like yeah, that. you know what I'm saying? Do you feel like you've had the most successful rebranding in hip hop history? Hands down. Yeah, hands down. I don't know. I, I think I, I I implement a lot of business strategies and rap in my music. Mm-hmm. A lot of brands and, and businesses, they change their logo or they change something every three to five years. Mm-hmm. And so for me, obviously going from Titty Boy to 2 Chains was the most epic thing that I could ever do for me and my family. Mm-hmm. But even, you know, moving forward with nicknames and just, you know, different strategies and things that I do are have a lot to do with the business side of 2 Chains. When did that happen? Um, I have some cool mentors in my life, man. And I just use everything like a gumbo, man. You know, I I meet people and I'd be like, wow, what if I did this or what if I changed my logo? You know, you see it all the time where they show you a Coca-Cola logo, a McDonald's logo, and what it looked like over a period of time and how you didn't even notice how it changed over a period of time. You know what I'm saying? We're talking about brands that are solidified brands like, you know, you, you were taking somewhat of a risk, too, though. If you ain't got nothing to lose, you ain't taking no risk. That's a good point. You know, so you got to think I'm motivated, man. I'm, I'm sitting around, you know, I come from the little, you know what I'm saying, the little weed trap game, so I'm already serving a lot of these mm-hmm. rappers, and I'm already, like, I'm looking at my phone, and I'm saying, bro, a millionaire. At least that's what I'm thinking in my right. mind. I'm like, bro, a millionaire. And I go through my phone one day, you know, it's tune, it's all these. The legend is that any time rappers would come to the city, they would come see you. Yeah, so so the thing is, not even that kind of cap. The thing is, I'm looking at my phone, I go through, I say, Ross. I'm like, he, he a millionaire. He, he even bought this damn big ass house down the street. I'm like, he a millionaire. So I go through my phone. I got like eight millionaires damn near my phone. I'll never forget it. That I can call, text, we want, we kiki, I am, but I ain't having no M's. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, I knew I can get it. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm, I already knew I was confident. I already knew I could rap and all that shit. I just couldn't figure out why the people went like, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, damn, I ain't putting the extra on it. What I ain't showing, what I ain't doing. Mm-hmm. I'm having motion. I'm doing, I'm really like a real trap nigga. So I'm really scared to show y'all how much money I'm got, I got. I'm scared to show my friends. Mm-hmm. I'm scared to show y'all because my friends going to see it. Do you feel like you also, like, found some of your sound? Or, like, you know, like like you mentioned when it comes to 2 chains, like, you know, you're known for very witty bars, but also being very lyrical in your own right, in your own way. 
Or do you think the people figured it out once they started paying attention? That too. And then me taking what I learned and doing it every day. And after doing it every day, you know what I'm saying? You shape you, your sound. And then you start putting out these mixtapes to the world. Mm-hmm. I was using it as as data mm-hmm. on what people really like. So during that mixtape run, um, you you had a bar that's a very legendary bar. It's like a it was like a jab and a compliment. Titty boy two chain said, "I'm the hottest in the city without a gangster grills." Yeah, but it did take you some time to do. Oh, a hundred percent. The whole thing started because you weren't a believer. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? And you were so hot. <laughs> you know they paying you eight, ten, twenty thousand dollars to host. They take so anything you touch go through there. Uh-huh. But the thing is, I'm on fire, and you ain't touch mine. You know what I'm saying? That's why we sitting here now because <laughs> when we finally linked up, we fucked them folks up. Two Chains was right. He was the hottest in the city without a gangster grills. He was so hot that when we finally linked up for his tape, True Religion, it became the first mixtape to appear on the Billboard music charts. Just past the 10 year anniversary of the tape, mm-hmm. just speak about you know what True Religion meant to you, your memory, your, your memories of of doing that project, and you know what where things went from there. Well, True Religion birthed uh, my most infamous ad lib, which is true. Mm-hmm. It birthed the name of my label. Uh, so True Religion was a brand I was wearing, but when I put the tape together, I made the word T-R-U. I took the E off and I made T-R-U an acronym, and then I made religion, real, like, real religion, R-E-A-L, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, I get so hot, they, they want me to make a label. I take the T-R-U and I call it the real you or the real university, you know what I'm saying? Kind of like, because I went to college, kind of like me being a professor or a dean, you know what I'm saying, and, and teaching. And so that tape birthed a lot of ideas that still, I still, I say true every time I come on stage. You know, you hosting and coming aboard, you know, at the time where I'm just really in my bag. I'm having the music, I'm having the swag, I'm having the movement. I bought my tour bus before I got my record deal, so I got my tour. I'm moving around different. I done went through three bands already. I'm, I'm fucking that Chitlin market up like how I seen Boos and Webby do it, you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? I'm like, damn, I'm getting to thinking, boy, you can get rich down here in Memphis and Mississippi and Alabama and the Carolinas, you know? And I remember riding around and getting it mm-hmm. and it's going, you know, nuts. And I started doing shows in like Detroit, in Chicago and DC and I, I just I never I never look back again. So. And this is this is off the success of True Religion. Absolutely. And so before True Religion, you hadn't did your deal at Def Jam yet. No. Oh. Uh, no, 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 no. So then you did the deal after True Religion. Yeah. I had a lot of leverage when I went in a lot of a lot of buildings. You yeah. know, I ended up going back to Def Jam. I was already in that building, but mm-hmm. I went around to everyone. My whole thing when I went to a lot of the meetings was I was already a domestic superstar. I wanted to be international. So I would ask what they had going on overseas. So I feel like when I think about Atlanta, the dominance and the run that the city has had, I feel like, and I think for me it was going to this event called Beer and Tacos, and it it almost felt like it, it was a changing of the guards that literally was happening at that very moment from a tip Jeezy and Gucci era to like a change in future era. When I say that to you, what do you, what do you take from that? Atlanta's been, um, you know, kind of infamous for passing the torch. Mm-hmm. So 
I felt like I passed it down to the Migos and, and they probably passed it down to, you know what I'm saying? So I felt like, but I do remember. Like, could you feel that happening when it was happening? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, these people, all these people motivated me, you know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Like, Gucci, my cousin, got name. I remember, mm -hmm. I remember actually when I did the song, Fuck the Roof, Wayne and Gucci was locked up and I felt like somewhere in my DNA, I kind of had a combination of both of them as far as like mm -hmm. skill set. I was like, let me try to feel this boy. And so they all had a lot to do with what I had going on. Jeezy had, you know, an incredible run. Um, Tilt kind of was spearheading. He was kind of first with all of it, so... I saw what you could do with it once you could get a little piece of it, so. What are some of your favorites off True Religion? On that tape, my favorite song is probably K.O. Mm -hmm. And it's because, it's because one, I feel like I should have put that on my album. Mm. I, always, I just don't know why I didn't, you know. And and the reason I put Big Sean on there because it had like this little sample piece that mentioned Detroit and me and Big Sean was rapping, you know. It's good music thing. We were just like building, building that super duper friendship. Being, you know what I mean. And um, it's one of my favorite. I could listen to the song, you know, every week. You know what I'm saying. And those are one of the records that I really liked. It was kind of rappy. It mm -hmm. wasn't all trapped out. What I talked about mm -hmm. earlier. I really like, you know, Sean spitting. I'm spitting. And that was one of the records that I really liked. That people really liked. That the women really like. It's like one of my complete tunes. So. That might be my favorite to the point where I shoot that video today. That's not a bad idea. I think, you know. I shoot that motherfucker. Yeah. We also did another record together, which is very pivotal, called My Moment. Yeah. Um, you had a very legendary verse on there. It was a legendary verse. To this day, people still come up to me and tell me to work out to their shit. That's hard. No, that was, that was a banger. Do you have any favorite Gangsta Grills? What's the animated one with Wayne, shirt off? Uh, dedication. It's dedication to Trap or Die for me, probably. Okay, yeah, those are... Yeah, yeah, for me. Those, are, two. those are top two. Mm. What about your um, your kids? Like, have your daughters listening to Tyler? Are they into Tyler? My daughter, like, my daughter liked Tyler for sure. She went to the concert, too, yeah. She went to the mm -hmm. concert. She likes Call Me If You Get Lost. Yeah, she so, totally does. She she does. Before that, do you think they were familiar with Gangsta Grills or... Nah. No, they, they, man, it's amazing how either disconnected the kids are or how disconnected we are, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I'm always walking around the house like, you know, man, your dad look good. Look at the other dads. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm like trying to let them know I'm help. I'm knowing what's going on. Y'all go to private school. I remember I used to be like, y'all ain't got this dance at y'all school yet? I used to just be like, you know, messing with them. But they don't, you know, even with me listening to old songs, dad, this year, whatever, so... You know, they in, you know, it's a TikTok age, man. Unless some of our songs can kind of get re right. revived on TikTok, it's crazy. How do they approach your music that's before their time? They actually love my music, which is crazy. They actually affected my music maybe two albums ago, maybe on Rapper Go to the League or something like that. My daughter had said something to me, and I was like, oh, they listening. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? And when she said that I was kind of more conscious of what I was saying, and then recently I was like, you know, fuck that, these kids gonna grow up, you know what I'm saying? I can't, like, this is my art, I gotta be able to express it, so I'm back on some, you know, titty boy too, but for like a whole project, I was kinda being very conscious of how I approach records. How did you go about getting LeBron involved in that project? LeBron James is a professional athlete from the city of, <laughs> nah, I'm playing.
LeBron was doing more than an athlete campaign. You know what I'm saying? They were trying to tell him to shut up and dribble. Mm -hmm. And then I'm doing this campaign where it's like they only think somebody black can rap airplane questions for me. You know what I'm saying? Like somebody trying not to hurt my feelings, trying not to be disrespectful, but what team you play for? Oh, oh, oh you know, what do you do for, you know what I mean? Like ain't nobody asked me nothing else. You know what I'm saying? So this project had some kind of substance on it for me, you know what I'm saying? Because I am someone that likes to have a good time. I tried to have a little moment where I was giving some people some free game. And so I brought in LeBron because he was somebody that was very relatable to the culture and he never um, hid the fact that he was listening to our music, you right. know what I'm saying? And you talk about LeBron, when you talk about Kobe, when you talk mm -hmm. about Jordan. Mm -hmm. So he like one of them, you know what I'm saying? And so he in the back is Maybach playing all these songs. I said, you know, shit. I'm about to at home to come listen to all this stuff. I'm going to let him pick the songs out. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know. And he was with it. And shit, man. The all-time NBA scoring leader, actually, A&R, one of my projects. So that, that's the same. Yeah, we're going to look back at that one. Came to the crib. We had a good time. Came to the crib. Mm -hmm. And actually, he said something. He mentioned a deluxe back then that I didn't do that became very popular after that. I swear he's on a, you got to say these songs. We got to come back out, come back out with it. And I'm like. Before the deluxe before wave. That, before the wave came, man. Deluxe albums have been around forever. But since 2020, there's been a wave of deluxe rap albums. From Little Dirk, Migos, Doja Cat, and more. The artists will release an album with, say, 14 songs. Then a week later, release a deluxe version with the original 14 songs, plus another five, or six, or 10. Before the deluxe wave, LeBron suggested this plan to 2 chains. Maybe LeBron's got a career as a music exec in his future if this whole basketball thing doesn't work out. Man, Bron on, on, telling me, you need to come back and put these, you know what I'm saying? And I'm really looking at him like, huh, shit. And man, so let me give him his flowers, you know? I appreciate that. Being um, a former ball player, like, do you compare hip-hop to sports and basketball a lot? I compare hip-hop to high school. Okay. Or the WWE. Explain. Okay, in WWE, you got these characters, right? Right. And they can make you like them or they can make you boo. They can make you hate them, right? And they come out and say, you know, oh, man, shut the fuck up. And people are like, boo. Right. right. Then you got these other guys that come out and they're like, you know, we're going to give turkeys away. And they like, man, he's such a, you know, nice guy. And they get an image. And it just reminds me a lot of the WWE because it's not real, but... It's not about what's real or what's not real. It's like entertainment. What can we make these people believe out here that's watching us? That's what I get from it. And so, you know, trying to be the realest nigga in the game sometimes don't really work in this field. Mm -hmm. You look like you too, you know what I'm saying? But a nigga that know how to act it, sometimes he be sticking that landing. <laughs> and then to make a real nigga so mad at a nigga that playing it. And what about high school? High school is small rumors. Everybody fucking on the same people. The new guy always get the hoes, you know what I'm saying? As soon as he come to school for that little run, uh -huh. he, from, he from another school. <laughs> he all of a sudden, he look better than everybody He until they find out he just like everybody else. Or the new girl come, now everybody want to check her temperature, you know what I'm saying? It's just like high school, you know, um, people talk all this stuff and then going to meet in wherever time to handle their business and 
it got a lot of those elements in it. You know what I'm saying? And sometimes I'm like, man, I don't know if it helps or hurt my career that I try not to participate in either yeah. one of the activities, you know? What do you think the, the keys to your success and your longevity have been? Consistency, prayer, and hard work. You know, and I know that sounds cliche, but I really do believe in prayer. You know what I'm saying? Having faith, I do that. And I believe that if you do anything over and over and make it habitual, that it's going to work. You know what I'm saying? And in order to do things over and over and be consistent, you really got to work hard. You got to do it when you don't want to, when you want to, when it's raining, when it's cold, when it's hot, when it's all that. So if you mix all those, for me, when I mix all those elements together, I've got nothing but success back, you know what I'm saying? And I'm someone that's constantly mixing this together. I mm -hmm. pray every day. I work hard every day mm -hmm. for a period of time every day, and it just come back tenfold. And I try to... Uh, I try to stand on and have integrity, and, sure. you know, I ain't laughing at jokes that ain't funny, and... Just being a, a man of my word, being a good father, husband at home, just all these things. But the main three elements for me is that work hard, pray harder type of thing for me. It, it just works for me. Are there things in music that you haven't done that you still want to check off your list? Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. I want, I want, that's what keeps me hungry, I think, you know. I don't, don't want to mention them, but I do have a, a mental vision board of things that I still do want to accomplish in this game. I'm still excited. I'm still eager to, I'm still like, you know, I can't wait to record a song tonight. I I still don't know what I might say next. Mm. That's, that's I'm, I'm geeking off like, I'm still like so clever and witty. I ain't ran out of them, you know what I'm saying? I I put up some shit just last night just like, cause I was bored, but I just did a song 30 seconds ago. Mm. So that's just like, I'm still in that little phase where it just excites me to know that I might have a metaphor that ain't been thought about and all that shit yet. Interestingly enough, though, like, you know, you were somebody that was very influential, specifically in Atlanta, during a, a lean coding phase, you know, and then you made a proper transition out of that. You know what I'm saying? I'm proud of myself. I, I, I ain't gonna lie, I some lean recently, but <laughs> but I got it under control, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But, yeah, man, I was I was one of them. Man. I did. I had a coding cowboy. Yeah. I had a, I had a tape called Coding Withdrawal that I did when it wasn't no drinking town, and I had to tell myself I could still rap without drinking. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, man, it's it's hard to believe like how many pints came through the studio, how many you know times we just and how many people are not even here anymore that For I sure. used to drink with and yeah. toast up with and celebrate with and just that whole culture. You know what I'm saying? But was there a time where you felt like you needed substances to get in your creative bag? I would always challenge it. I would always try to challenge different circumstances so I wouldn't be someone that had writer's block because I, it was too many people in the studio or not enough people in the studio or drink or no drink. You know, I do like to smoke my joints and mm -hmm. stuff like that, but just like I try to challenge myself. But, but for a long time, lean was a part of my everyday activity. I needed it to go on stage. I needed it because it was like a painkiller and I already had a, I had a messed up stomach for, and I didn't know that it was making me feel better at the time that I was just pouring it so heavy or hurting me or I don't know what it was doing, but it was very much a part of my creative process mm -hmm. one time it was. But like I said, when I think when I made Coding Withdrawal, it gave me confidence to know I could do it on or off because I really did that take without drink and I had some slaps on it. Mm, for sure. Lean, a.k.a. Scissor, a.k.a. The Purple Drink, 
aka mud, aka promethazine codeine, mixed with some soda and Jolly Ranchers, can be traced all the way back to Houston's DJ Screw that has greatly influenced the culture ever since. From Lil Wayne to ASAP Rocky, UGK to Future, it comes with a heavy cost though. We've lost many artists along the way because of their addiction, including DJ Screw himself. Rest in peace. Last question. Stone, you're a minority owner of the Atlanta Hawks G League. Mm, yeah. Congratulations on that. Thanks. When it comes to basketball and hip-hop, like, whose game do you respect? So now with music, a lot of artists become rappers when they get older. I think back in the days, people used to rap when they were young and kind of like, you know, like Bow Wow, a lot of those guys, right? Huh. They used to rap when they were young and come up. I think a lot of, this is just my opinion, a lot of people that end up rapping now had some type of outside childhood, mm -hmm. some type of sports background, whether it's football. Like, a lot of artists are very athletic these mm -hmm. days. If you see somebody throw a football or play basketball, so I don't think I have one. Obviously, I know J. Cole went overseas Cole and played play, and all yeah. that stuff, but just really... It's a lot of artists that I've seen take a jump shot that I could tell they played somewhere before. They right. ain't just, like, throwing it out of bounds. So Can Ye play? Ye pretty good. He's straight. Yeah, he's I played good. with him before. We've done some UCLA games or something like that. Yeah, he can play. He's not trash, for sure. Appreciate you, my brother. And like that, we gone. This has been an Audible Original, produced by Colabo Inc. Society, hosted by DJ Drama, featuring 2 Chains, executive produced by Kenya Barris, DJ Drama, Wheezy WTF, Layton Lakeshow Marson, Audible Executive Producer, Joshua Poole, produced by Roy Farrell, Kristen Alcala, consulting producer, Jamie Nelson. Production was engineered by Alex Anderson and WTF Media Studios. Sound design and mixing, Michael Beliveau, edited by... Alex Anderson of WTF Media Studios, edited by Jamie Nelson, written by Dustin Smith, F.A. Ilgai, and Damilare Sunoiki. Original music by Don Cannon, researched by Dustin Smith, talent booking by Marquetta Moore, production lawyer Eric Spiegelman, production accountant Kristen Johnson, production assistants Devin Kruger, Victoria Larte, Tiana Johnson, head of Audible Studios Zola Mashariki, executive vice president, head of U.S. content Rachel Giazza, copyright 2023 by Calabo Productions Inc., sound recording copyright 2023 by Audible Originals LLC. 